Villa Hermosa, Mexico, with our teams right now. They have floods, as you've been watching on TV, and the Samaritan's Purse teams there. And I've been watching her for a, a few months, and um, just the, the prettiest young lady with a big heart for God, wants to do missions. And I was telling my son Matt, I said, I've put my good eye on somebody you need to send an email to. And so uh, today I asked him, I said, did you get that email out a couple months ago when I told you about it? He goes, Dad, what am I, in the 10th grade or something? <laughs> I said, no, I'll take the pressure off of you, son. You know, uh, uh, until you have kids, you don't, you really don't know the, the love that you can have for somebody until you hold them in your hands. And as I was talking in this last talk, of all the things that you want to teach your kids, you want to pass on to your friends and family, people you work with, you want them to know when they die, heaven's their home. I've been traveling to these churches for the last 11 years, and you'd be surprised how many Sundays I go to speak in multiple service environments, and a pastor or a creative team will say to me after, let's say, a second service, hey, listen, don't ask Christ. It was May the 8th, uh, 1980. I was just coming back from a youth camp in Tampa, Florida, trying to get back to services on Sunday morning in Miami. I came across the Sunshine Skyway Bridge, which in Florida is the highest bridge, 180 feet off the water, connects St. Petersburg with Bradenton area. And uh, Got the kids back, got them all dropped off at home. I was tired, had to get up the next morning to do youth, youth services. And about 7.40, my wife said, get in here. And I walked into the living room. And on the morning of May the 9th, 1980, a 465-foot vessel called the Summit Venture, Captain John Lero. There had been a storm that had taken place off the shore of St. Pete that morning. No ships had come in. And as he'd made his way down the Tampa Channel, which is a very tight channel, without report, that storm came in, pushed him out of the channel. When the storm passed very quickly, the bow of that vessel was off the main piling on the center span of the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. When it hit, if you'll go online, it's very eerie that you can uh, Google in uh, some adventure disaster. And you can listen to the Coast Guard recording of J Captain John Laro as he calls Tampa Coast Guard and declares an emergency. Mayday, Mayday, he says. And he talks about that there is a, a, a crash that's happened. And the Coast Guard lady comes back on and says, say again, he said, Mayday, Mayday, send all vessels. There are people in the water at the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. She asks a third time. And he said, say again, what is the name of your vessel? And he said, Summit Venture. And all of a sudden, if you know anything about the Coast Guard, you hear these loud blaring signals going out and a pause. And that Coast Guard officer say, all vessels, all vessels proceed immediately to the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. That day, 32 people lost their life. 
17 vehicles, including a Greyhound bus, because the, the fog had covered the bridge, went off that center span, 180 feet, down into the water and lost their lives. The Tampa Bay Tribune reported that one of the vehicles that stopped, an unknown man got out and tried to stop traffic, waving his arms, they said. And cars passed by and went right past him and down off into that water. What has been lost in America is, is in regards to the, the truth of the Word of God is two things. We talk about the gospel, but I'm not sure we believe in the reality that there is only one way to God, and that is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, that it is an urgent matter. The gospel is true. There aren't many ways to God. Every once in a while, Larry King, they interview somebody and they'll say to him, what do you think? Is the only way to heaven the Christian faith? And I have watched great pastors kind of shrug their shoulders and say, Larry, I'm just not, you know, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want to say. I want you to look at Revelation the 20th chapter and the 11th verse. The Lord just keeps pressing it on my heart for, for some reason. Revelation chapter 20. Let's see if I can get it right this time. The 20th chapter and the 11th verse. The Bible says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hell gave up its dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades, hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Verse 15 is the, is the most pertinent verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It was 30, 33 years ago, I guess, when I first started in ministry, seminary professor Dr. Elmer Towns sent my wife Denise and I down to a little small town, Statesboro, Georgia. He said there's a little country church down there needs an interim pastor. Kirk, this will be a good place for you to go and, and begin to start into ministry while you finish seminary. And so I went down there and the little church was full of problems. And um, I'd drive down there on Saturday and preach on Sunday and Sunday night, come back with my wife and go to school all week long and work. And there was one particular weekend my wife couldn't go and so I preached all day Sunday and I got done and I was on my way back. And there was a new road between Macon, Georgia and Savannah, new expressway. And I was so glad it was opened. Brand new asphalt. Boy, I was getting it trying to get up the road. And I looked off into the distance. There were no uh, street lights or anything like that. And I saw a glow up there. And I thought, what is it? I came over a second pass and I saw a car on fire. And I, I started slowing down. Nobody else was out there. This is a brand new road. And it was like, nobody's there. You know, it just kind of catches you off guard. And, and so here I was just uh, 21, 22 years old. And I pulled off on the side of the road. I could see somebody by the car. And so I, urgency kicked in. I ran up there. And here was this guy sitting here by this car. 
Never forget it as long as I live. He was burned like nothing I'd ever seen before. And there he was close to that fire. And I almost didn't want to touch him and pull him back. I thought maybe, you know, his skin would fall off or something. I didn't know what to do. I was just a young kid. And then the next thing I saw, I'll never forget for the rest of my life. It was his wife that was inside the car, and she was still alive, being burned to death. And there he sat. And he was burned so bad, you couldn't hardly hear anything, just kind of like the Bible says, groanings that can't be uttered, you know, just. And I remember standing there, I didn't have a fire extinguisher, I didn't know what to do. And I sat down next to that guy, and she didn't last but just minutes. And... Uh, I can remember that for the last 32, 33 years of my life, that when I come to that passage of Scripture, just for me, that if a man or woman's name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, I believe in a real heaven and a real hell. Now, I don't know when the last time was you heard a message on hell. Greg Laurie, the pastor down in California, said the other day, he challenged my thinking. He said, when was the last time you heard a message on hell? I thought to myself, I think it's been a long time. And so I got my team together and I said, you know, if we're going to go out to the remotest places in this world and relieve suffering in Jesus' name, behind it, we've got to believe that, that people are not only separated from God, but there's coming a time when they're going to be cast into the lake of fire, a place that burns with fire and brimstone, and you once see somebody burned to death, I'll say to you, you will determine whether you believe that the Bible is true and the Word of God is clear. And that will take you back to saying, my God, help me help people have a right beginning. Only two things last forever, the Word of God and the souls of people. And you read up in these verses that I just read to you that, that we are going to be judged for the, who's the we? Those that had the right beginning. If you've prayed and invited Jesus Christ into your life, you're going to stand before God and give an account. What kind of life did you live? It's going to happen to me and, and to your pastor. And Christ says to you, now listen, let me help you here. And if you'll go back to 1 Timothy 6, 17, 18, and 19, it is the, it's kind of the, uh, what do you call, the clarion call of my life this, this last three years. 1 Timothy chapter 6. What we're going to look at here is, is leadership. We need to risk our leadership. We need to get it out there. We need to realize that leadership is influence, that we've got to make the, the big decisions early in our life. I look at some of you so young. Make the big decisions now and then manage them the rest of your life is what Maxwell says. And so if you look in verse 19, that last phrase, if you have a pen, I want you to underline it. He says in uh, the 6th chapter of 1 Timothy, verse 19, so that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. The question I have for you, are you living that kind of life? Am I? Pastor Terry said to me a minute ago, he said, what if that was us as fathers? And that was our boys on the ground. Listen, I don't want to even think about it. My son is there. Right off the dirt strip or the DC-3 for Samaritan's Purse lands, there's a giant site. It's, it's half as big as this opening right here. It says, stay on the roads. Landmines have not been cleared. 
I can hardly think about it some nights. Because they go back in the bush to rebuild these churches. And Paul is saying to his son in the faith, Timothy, like I would say to Matthew or my son Clint or my daughter Ashley, I want you to take hold of a life that is truly life. How do you do that? We were talking about risking our hearts. Now let's talk about leadership. You just have to come to the passage and let it speak to you. It says this, command those who are rich, verse 17. Can I ask you a question? Who is that he's talking to? The rich. My son Matt said when he got to Sudan, he was like 220 pounds. He's about 170 pounds now. I remember when he first got there and we were on the satellite phone once a week for about 10 minutes. It was constant crying for months. I could hardly understand him. I remember one of our talks where I said, son, are you, are you eating? And he gained his composure and he said, dad, this is when he was staying in a tent. He said, I'll boil white rice. And all of a sudden these little kids come out of the bush. They stop about 20 feet out and they hold out their little hands. And dad, best I can tell, they're eating about once every six or seven days. If the UN shows up, USAID or the World Food Program. Dad, don't ask me if I'm eating. Verse 17, command those that are rich. There's not one of us in here, no matter what our lot in life in America, that can't say in comparison to the rest of this world, we're not rich. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Uh, I... I I'm so embarrassed about that. Nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. You know, I mean, I listened from 3.30 to 6.30 this morning coming off the mountain, going to the Charlotte airport, everybody talking about the economy and the uncertainty and all that we face and all of our tensions being caught up in that because that's where our affection is. He says, but put your hope in God. You, know, you get a hundred or so men together and you say, are, are any of us really going to do that? Franklin Graham looked at me yesterday and he said, I wonder how we're all going to start acting if all of our 401ks get wiped out. We've got to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. As a result of that, you'll take hold of a life that's truly life. You won't do any better in 2008 than you finished 2007. I'll assure you that. We're always going to get to something. You have no promise of tomorrow, and yesterday ended last night at midnight. And if you don't put in to practice a series of things that if you take that last talk, strength for today, hope for tomorrow, right beginning, right mind. What is the right mind? There are three thoughts that I want to leave for you before you, you uh, go to the rest of the evening. And I left these with you sometime when I spoke one of these times here, but I'm here to tell you I repeat, I go over these so many times with with men across the country today, and they call me on the phone, email me, and say, give me those three things again. Number one, a man will not make it if he doesn't stay in a place of resurrender. 
When my daughter Ashley was born, I think I told the story, my dad said we didn't have girls in the Nowry family. He said, in fact, we didn't have boys, we had men. So when God gave me Ashley, I did not know what to do with her. I grew up in a home of boys, coal miners. We threw each other around, you know, kind of deal. When I held Ashley in my hands, and my wife had had C-section, I remember getting down on my knees. Have you ever felt like you faced something kind of over your head? They handed me this little girl. And I knelt down by my wife, who looked like she'd been through the war. And my wife looked at me and said, pray. You know what I did with that little girl? I gave her to God. I didn't know what else to do. I surrendered our lives to raise her. I don't think we can make it as men. We can't make it in our faith. We can't make it with our marriages. We can't make it with our kids. We can't make it. We can't maintain our integrity at work. You know, when an offering plate comes by at church, uh, we, we pass the offering. We pass the offering around at church, you know, and God looks at you and says, I just need you to, to say to me that you realize everything you have I gave you. You know, the formula is not complex. One out of ten. It's not complex. Now, I know it sounded complex, but let me give it to you one more time. <laughs> one out of ten. You know, when you made a hundred bucks, ten bucks wasn't a big issue, was it? But it lets you make a hundred thousand and ten thousand becomes an issue, does it not? He lets you keep nine. I never have, I can't figure that deal out. God says one out of ten. The purpose of the tithe is not that he needs our money. The purpose of the tithe is it reminds us that everything we have he gave us. But why is it we resist that? Why? He just said, be generous, willing to share. Don't put your faith and trust in uncertain riches, but put your hope in me. And so about the time he says, and you, you, know, you put your hands up in the air and you sing and everything, but then that offering plate comes by. Quit putting your hands up in the air if you're not doing one out of ten. Don't tell me that you have Jesus in your heart if you're not following his plan. Well, you all got quiet on me. <laughs> because I want to say something to you. He said, what does he say in the scripture? He said, your sacrifices stink in my nose. You go back and you make things right, and then you come to my altar. Because what you're doing in secret, I know about. He said to his son in the faith, Paul did, don't put your trust in certain riches. Don't you think that your answer is your 401k? You be generous and willing to share. Don't you close your eyes to that there's children around this world that tonight, after we have our food and our snacks and our filled coffee and our triscuits and stuff back in our room and everything, that there's little boys that are laying in huts tonight. They're going to cry themselves to sleep. And there is enough food in this world to feed them. We just can't get people to carry it to them. You've got to stay in a place of resurrender. Number two. You say, but how do I, how do, I do that? How, how do I stay in that place? You've got to listen to God. 
You've got to listen to God. What is the primary way God speaks to us? Through His Word. Do you know that uh, Operation Christmas Child, your church does, that's the Samaritan's Purse Initiative, 8 million children will get a shoebox this year. 8 million children. I had a little girl give her testimony the other night. Her name's Layla. She's out of Bosnia. During the war in Bosnia, she talked about her family suffering, them having no food, it being in the middle of winter, her parents wanting her to have an education, so they took her shoes her brother's shoes, and they put wires. They were all worn out, and they, they sewed them up with wire, bailing wire. And she didn't want to go to school for two reasons. It was so cold, and she didn't want her friends to make fun of her. She was just a little girl. And her mom made her go anyways, and the water from the snow leaked in, and her feet were cold, and she tells the story how she couldn't feel her toes. She got to school, and everybody started making fun of her because she had the shoes on with a bailing wire in the front. She said that afternoon somebody showed up with these shoe boxes. And she thought somebody's brought us shoes. And she went into the room over there and there were some Samaritan's Purse folks there. And they started handing out these shoe boxes to these kids and she ran and got a box and this little 10-year-old girl ran over into the corner and she opened the box. Now I don't know you you know your church does shoe boxes? There are no shoes in those boxes. Their toys, there's a, a gospel track in their language, invitation to do discipleship. And if they go through the 11-week discipleship program, every child will get a Bible. Do you know last year we passed out 2 million Bibles to children that went through 11 lessons around the world? Costs about $8.80 per child to get that all around the remotest places in the world. This little girl, Layla, went over in the corner and she opened her shoebox. And guess what was inside? It's her testimony, not mine. Shoes. In her size. Eight million boxes? We don't put shoes in. She said she opened her box and there were shoes. And she cried and she put on the new tennis shoes. And they were her exact size. You ought to see this 25-year-old woman stand there and cry and talk about the shoes. And she ran up to the man that was standing there and said, where did these shoes come from? And he said, America. They came from Jesus. And she went home to her Muslim home, and she said, they, the family asked her, said, where did you get those shoes? said, they came from America from a man named Jesus. <laughs> Got to hear her tell the story. She said, I want to write him a letter and thank him. She got in a corner with her shoebox and she found in her language a gospel track. Her mother read it to her and her mother gave her heart to Christ and then her dad, Layla, gave her heart to Christ. She lives up in Pennsylvania now with her husband and her two kids. She travels around for us and she tells the story of the shoebox with shoes. You know the thing that's unbelievable about it is not Layla's story and it's not the shoebox. It's that in eight million boxes... The little girl in Bosnia, God cared enough about to send her a message he'd not forgotten her with a pair of tennis shoes her exact size. I want to say something to you, that at the toughest times in life, if you'll listen to God, you'll find that he never turns his back on you. You've got to listen to God. 
But you see, we stick our Bible somewhere till it comes to the annual men's retreat, or till, you know, we're we're some of your big arguments on Sunday are with your wives trying to say, "Where did I leave my Bible last Sunday?" The primary way God speaks is through His Word, and He misses His time with you, as Larnell Harris used to sing. God also speaks through creation. Man, some of the best talks I've had with God sitting up in the mountains listening to his still small voice. Just his whispers, reminders. God speaks through circumstances. We get so busy and pressed and noisy that often we don't see the hand of God move when he moves through circumstances. God speaks through the wise counsel of friends. And sometimes he even speaks through not so wise of friends. Remember, he used Balaam's ass. The, th- the problem that we have is, is that we're not always looking and listening for him. My wife spent two weeks in Sudan. Well, I take for granted her voice. I'm there in the cabin in Boone at night now, and I just wish I could call her on the phone and aggravate her <laughs> and just hear her say, What is wrong with you? I miss her voice. Skyped her yesterday. My wife browns up in two days anywhere she's at, and she's brown as a berry. She had this smile that'd go from Charlotte to Boone. I looked at her, and she said, you okay? It's Morse code. Well, it means my, it means my time's up. I just wanted to hear her voice. Can I tell you something? You need to listen to God. You need to watch for Him, wait for His hand to move. Because I'm here to tell you, if you stay in that place of listening to God, you'll live a life that's truly life. You've got to resurrender, listen to God. Last, you've got to remember the value of a promise and keep it. We're just a lousy group of guys in America. We just don't keep our promises anymore. The other day I went out with a guy looking at some property to build a place in Boone. They said he's the largest landholder in Watauga County. He's on our board. Him and his brother started in North Carolina selling leather purses out of their, out of their uh, trunk of their uh, car during tourist season. They've built the largest leather processing business in the world. I said, I really don't know him much. What do I need to know about him? And a lady in our office said this. She said, uh, he never signs a piece of paper, but when he shakes your hand, he's never broken a promise. Wouldn't that be something to be said about you? But your wife said, he's never broken a promise. Your kids say, dad's never broke a promise. It's tough to do. But I'm here to tell you, stay in a place of resource listen to God, you'll keep your promises. You'll live a life that's truly life. In the toughest times of life, I keep coming back to these principles. When they told me, they said, Mr. Dyer, we're going to send your test results out to MD Anderson. Let's talk to you for just a minute about renal carcinoma. Denise wasn't there. Kids weren't there. I thought, isn't this about a deal? And I said, well, Lord, 
I'm not calling Denise. Even if it's true. I'm not going to ruin this trip for her. So one more time, I put my life in your hands. Lord, I'm here listening to you. I want you to know whether I have it or not that I love you with all my heart. Help me finish well. Remember what I said in that last talk, I say to my kids all the time, I love the Lord with all my heart. I love your mother unconditionally. You know, there's something to that. And I will love you kids till I take my last breath. Strength for today, hope for tomorrow, living a life that's truly life. Risking your heart, risking your leadership. At the end, your legacy will be that you've lived a life that's truly life. The legendary coach John Wooden, UCLA, you guys know that name. The winningest coach of all times, Pat Summit. I had dinner with John Wooden and Pat Summit with John Maxwell here a few years back, his 90th birthday. And we're sitting around the table, and we each get to ask a question. It's kind of a cool thing. They signed a basketball for us. And uh, Maxwell has dinner with both of them every year and invited a few of us to be there. Everybody's going around the table. They got to ask a question. It came around to me. And Coach Wood, who I thought was his wife, said, Pat Summit was there with that steely look on her face. And so when it came to me, I said, Wooden, the question I have is for you. I said, uh, um, you know, your, your players adore you. I mean, every year ESPN special during your birthday, and they come on and say, you taught them lessons in life. One of the best books you'll ever read uh, on leadership is, is John Wooden's book, Seven Pr- uh, Principles, the Pyramid Book. Seven Principles of Success, I think it's called. It's a great book. He's a fine Christian. I said, but those principles that you applied to your players, I've never heard anything about your family. Can you tell me how those coaching principles applied to your home? And that 90-year-old man turned to, remember I thought it was his wife, and he reaches over and he gets her by the hand. He said, I think it'd be best to have my daughter answer that question. Now he's 90, so she's got to be, what, 70? So they're kind of close looking. <laughs> so all of a sudden, and I watched her during dinner, I thought, you know, husband and wife and because she kept taking care of him. And all of a sudden I saw this 70-some-year-old woman turn and look at her dad, the way Ashley, my daughter, looks at me like a daughter looks at her father. And she looked back at me, she had her dad by the hand, and here's what she said. Young man, I always like somebody to say that to me. (laughs) She said, young man, my daddy took those principles and he never stopped sacrificing for our dreams. Until you heard a pin drop around that table and everybody was going, oh, isn't that sweet and everything. And it hit me. She's 70-something. And he's never stopped sacrificing for her dreams? Somehow I've been confused here in this country because I thought when they got through college, they got cheaper. Got them to 18, 21, then graduate school, medical school. Daddy, I want to be a medical missionary, all that stuff. <laughs> and I thought at least putting Ashley through medical school, you know, that I somewhere... 
I mean, the tuition payment at Vanderbilt Medical School was $43,000 a year doing cash on September 1st. Now, I got to tell you something. My wife looked at me when we got that bill, and she goes, we're going to have to tell her she can't go. You got to remember how I started. Do you remember? Got down on my knees, held this little girl. Not supposed to have girls. And I gave her to God. And with these three kids that God gave me, and this wife of 31 years that I hit the lottery with, just got one of those girls that's a keeper. I've been committed to their dreams. Now listen, it's a matter of heart. You've got to risk your heart. And what I mean by that, it's got to be right. Right beginning, right mind, right lifestyle, right resources. So that you lay hold of a life that's truly life. Because I've not got to the boat yet. But I got a wife tonight, literally, while we're here. You know, it's uh, one East Coast time. So they're having breakfast right now, seven hours ahead. They're in the Sudan, a wife, a son, a daughter that tonight is in Honduras with Children's Heart Project, picking up a little girl that if they don't get her to the Mayo Clinic for heart surgery, she'll die. And I'll tell you what that does. We'll lead that whole family to Christ. That's Ashley. And Clint, who's a youth pastor in Atlanta, he's got 1,200 middle schoolers in his youth department. 1,200. Listen, you've got to be called to 1,200 middle schoolers. <laughs> I got a grandbaby, Bentley Reese. I've already started praying for her husband, her life, her commitment of faith. And so I sit back over there and I say to you, in 31 years of marriage and 52 years of life, there are some things more than the cars and the houses and the addresses and all that kind of stuff. There's a life that's truly life. Right beginning, right mind, right lifestyle, right resources. Then, when you get up in the morning, Lord, I want to resurrender all that I am and all you've given me. My wife, my kids, my business, my job, my work. I want to resurrender everything in my life to you. Help me know how to use that. Lord, let me listen for you, watch for you today. Grab my Bible real quick here. I'm going to get that Phil's coffee down on Folsom and 24th here in a minute. But that's not more important than hearing your word. I'm going to listen and watch. Help me see your hand move today. Help me see it. Let me follow it. I want to be where the action's at. Don't let me miss the feeding of the 5,000. I want to be one of those guys that's out there and passing it out, people saying, where'd this come from? Jesus. And then help me make a promise. That is, I'll follow you. Remember, that's what Peter said. Lord, I love you and I'll follow you. I, I promise you. I've never turned my back on you. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Denied him three times, threw up, cried, and thought life was over. When he rose from the dead, you know what he said? You go to that passage of scripture. He said, you go tell those guys that I'm here, especially Peter. And tell Peter I'll meet him for breakfast in Galilee. And on that morning on that seashore when Peter thought he'd failed and screwed up big time, he had. Do you ever fail and screw up big time? I have. 
He said, come here. Let me tell you what's going to happen with you now. There's going to come a day when someone's going to stretch out your hands and they are going to take your life for my sake. He looked at him and said, he's going to finish well. You know, if we knew that we would finish well, we'd start living differently today. You stack up all those days of doing the right thing. Resurrender, listen to God. Make your promises and keep them. There'll come a day when maybe you're going to flop around in the bed. But whether you do or you don't, wouldn't it be something for your last breath from those you love to hear you say, Jesus, I've lived for you since November the 8th, 2007. Help me not to mess up now. You think about that. Father, thank you for the evening and for these men and their willingness to come. I'm surprised they're here on Thursday night. They've given up work and stuff to come, and they're very serious about this. Out of this church of hundreds and hundreds, even thousands that they touch, these are the hundred men that are here, and you don't need more than that. You've always worked through a remnant. And so I pray, Father, uh, touch the hearts of these men. If there's one man here tonight that hadn't had the right beginning, I pray that tonight they'd settle that, that, that they would pray repent of their sins, tell you they're sorry, and invite you into their heart as their Lord and Savior and believe that you died on the cross for their sins. Help us to have the right mind and live the right life and know that you've given us everything that we need to get through this journey. Help us not to put our hope in wealth, but put our hope in you. Help us to be generous, willing to share. Help us when the offering plate comes by to put in one dollar out of ten, just one out of ten, to say, I know everything you've given me comes from your hand. And God, help them to experience the generosity that comes from a God that sees and blesses and gives us a life that's truly life. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.